Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 26. And as you do that, I'm going to use this brief time because, you know, Jeremiah, it's kind of buried in there. Uh, but just to, uh, I don't want to take up any of Andrew and Krista's time when they get up to speak at the end. Uh, but just to say uh, the, the connections that, um, that Zach alluded to, they're, they're, they're more even than that. And so we're just very thankful for their two families. We um, have known the two families that are joined in their marriage for, for many years. We ended up at Westminster in 2007 when you guys were, I think, still in the youth group at 2007. Y'all didn't, weren't married until... Yeah, okay. So, uh, and we got plugged into uh, Krista's parents' small group. And they became like parents to us and grandparents to our kids uh, just through the years as we went to the field and so forth. And so we're grateful. And Krista's sisters uh, are here. And uh, one of Andrew's uh, sister, Becca, is, or was here. She may have stepped out with a baby and Carpio, her husband. So anyway, greet, be sure to greet the extended family. They've turned this into a kind of a family reunion since uh, Andrew and Krista are here with us today. So as we eat, you can get to know them. Jeremiah chapter 26, verses 1 to 24. This is God's word. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord all the words that I command you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. It may be that they will listen and every one turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intended to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, If you will not listen to me, to walk in my law that I have set before you and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets whom I sent you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests... And the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant? And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the, new, in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your own ears. Then Jeremiah spoke to all the officials and all the people, saying, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city and all the words you have heard. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. But as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Only know for certain that if you put me to death, you will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon this city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to you to speak all these words in your ears. Then the officials and all the prophets said to the priests and the prophets, This man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. And certain of the elders of the land arose and spoke to all the assembled people, saying, 
Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had promised against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against this city and against this land in the words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and others with him. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him back to King Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place of the common people. But the hand of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah so that he was not given over to the people to be put to death. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you take your word now, and as we have sung and prayed, would you plant it deeply into our hearts? Would you give us ears to hear? Would you speak, O Lord, to us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The end of chapter 25 of Jeremiah, which we looked at last week, marks the end of the first scroll, the end of the first half of the book, the end of the first section. And so where we are today, we start a new section. And as you'll see as we work our way through it, you'll see it's, it's ordered differently, it's structured differently, it's put together differently. Did you notice a word that was repeated a lot when we read it? Don't you hate it when you get a pop test at the be- or pop quiz at the beginning? I almost called the sermon the word all. Uh, because the word all, I, I didn't even, I should have counted the word all. We're going to talk about the way it was used and sometimes in some of the smaller counts, but it's in here a lot. There's an emphasis on the word all in the way that it's used. There's some other themes and, and emphases as well that we'll see. From here to the end of the book, we see basically three sections in Jeremiah. And this first one that we're beginning today, chapters 26 to 36, focus on the struggles that Judah had during Jeremiah's ministry. And it includes, and I keep hinting at this because I'm excited when we get to it, but chapters 31 to 33, the book of consolation, the book of hope, the new covenant, the message, the announcement, the prophecy uh, that speaks to what we've received in the new covenant and really puts all of this together. So that's chapters 26 to 36. 37 to 45 is going to focus on the siege of the city. It's, that's you know, every, every week someone says, how do you keep preaching through such a dark book? Just hold on. <laughs> it's going to get darker, uh, and it continues to... <laughs> sorry. <laughs> when we get to this section, uh, and, uh, and then the last is a message to the nations, chapters 46 to 51. Um, you know, Jeremiah was called as a prophet of Judah, but also as a prophet to the nations. And in the very first chapter, he announces his ministry. And so, as he's already had a special message at different times to the nations, this last section. You might think of these three sections as almost like appendices. You know, you go to the back of a book and you have these kind of expanded sections that fill in what you've just read through that are more thematic 
than they are in, in a sense. The book is not chronological, so this isn't either, but in the sense of it takes us into themes. That's kind of how this is structured. And I think chapter 26 today serves as a really good example of how Jeremiah, along with the scribe Baruch, ordered even this chapter to present to us something that we've actually already seen. Do you remember another section of Jeremiah that we were in when I said we'll come to this again in chapter 26? Of course you do. It was when we were in Jeremiah 7 and we looked at the temple sermon. And I said when we were at the temple sermon, this same account is repeated in chapter 26. But it's not really repeated. There's two different uh, emphases that are presented in each of these. Chapter 7 gave us the whole content, or or, or much more of the content of the sermon. It it delivered to us the message itself as we looked at it. And what chapter 26 does is it focuses our attention, rather than on the content of the sermon, we get a very abbreviated form of it. In chapter 26, we get more of the surrounding events, the circumstances that happened during this time. As we've noted again and again, Jeremiah is not written chronologically, and so this this is presented more thematically. So we're taken back, back into the early days of Jeremiah's ministry, just after Josiah had died. I don't want us to get lost in the timeline. I know I've gone a little too deep a few times. But just briefly to say, Josiah was king. That's when Jeremiah started his ministry. Josiah dies in battle. Son, Jehoahaz comes. He's only on the throne three months, and then Jehoiakim. So this isn't much time that has passed. This is very early in, because it says this is the first year of Jehoiakim's reign. The way they counted the years and when they started the, the, the mark of a king's reign is, is more than we need to have time to get into. So it's anywhere from one to two years, but still very early in the, in the reign of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was placed on the throne by Pharaoh Necho. Remember, Egypt was the superpower at the time, and uh, before Syria rose, before Babylon rose. And so Jehoiakim's there, and he did much evil in the sight of God. And we get one of the accounts that he has already done within his first one to two years as king, we get the story of Uriah at the end of the passage. This guy's already killing prophets who say things that he doesn't like. Now, there are a number of other themes I've mentioned, uh, including this uh, call of Jeremiah to speak all the words. Now, this might sound uh, unnecessary to point out. Why wouldn't a prophet be called to speak all the words? And yet, The word all is used over and over again to draw our attention to the various themes. So we're paying attention to the word all. And when we see Jeremiah instructed to speak all the words, the emphasis here is on the fact that the message he was given was a difficult message, and we know that the audience was a difficult audience. And so Jacob is not being exhorted to speak all the words as if he was deficient in his role as a prophet, but rather to be encouraged. You know, go go do it. Say everything. Don't leave one word out. Because this is important. Speak all of the words. We also see God's sovereign care, a theme we've seen throughout Jeremiah's ministry. And in this place, um, in this time when his life is specifically threatened, they wanted to kill him. They cried out, he should die. He should die. The Lord preserves and protects him. And in this particular instance, we see the role of the people. The phrase, all the people, if you just glance down at your Bible, depending on how it's laid out, 
you, you'll see the word all the pe- or the phrase all the people repeated nine times. And if we count the last one, all of Judah, we could say ten times. So there is clearly an emphasis on the role of the people in this passage and the role that they played. Now this doesn't mean that every person in Judah was in Jerusalem at this time when he, when we when we use the phrase all the people, but rather it was all the people who were there. <clears throat> but the emphasis is on the role that they played. Now. Most scholars, we talked about this a little bit when we were in chapter 7, most scholars believe it was during a festival when this temple sermon was delivered. In other words, they would come up for these annual festivals to Jerusalem to worship God, so there would be a a larger number of people in the city. And we won't go into all the details that lead people to believe that, but I think it's it's a strong argument and it's likely what was happening. And, for example, uh, just one one. uh, indication of this is when uh, Jeremiah speaks and says, to, or the Lord tells him all for, to speak to all the cities of Judah. Well, how would all the cities of Judah be represented on an average day in Jerusalem? They probably wouldn't be, but during a festival, they absolutely would have been. Uh, so small indicators like that would lead us to believe there was a festival growing on. So the crowds are larger than normal size, and we see that play into, they become a powerful, a powerful force in the story as it unfolds. And so with that, beginning in verse 1, we see the date. Beginning with the, the early in Jehoiakim's reign, his first year, and the Lord speaks to Jeremiah. He tells him, go to the temple, stand in the court, and speak to all the cities of Judah. There's that indicator, which were represented in the gathered crowds who've come to worship. And the initial instruction that the Lord has given Jeremiah isn't the message that he's to, to, to take to them. And this gives us a little bit of insight into how this whole prophet, prophetic role worked, that God would speak to Jeremiah privately at times, and I'm sure we don't have all of this recorded. But here's a case where we do, where the Lord speaks privately to Jeremiah. This is not the message that he's delivered. He's about to give him that message, but he says some things to him at first to strengthen him. Part of that message is speak all the words, right? He wants him to be encouraged in the task. It's a difficult task. Don't shy back. Say everything that I've commanded you to say. But then in verse 3, we get this, this, what I think is just a treasure. It may be, the Lord says to Jeremiah, they will listen, and everyone turn from his evil way, that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. How do we make sense of a verse like this when we have a God who is omniscient and sovereign? It doesn't make sense. And yet, here we have it. We have clearly being taught a God who is omniscient. We've seen God's omniscience and sovereignty through, throughout Scripture, but particularly in our study of Jeremiah. Uh, and yet, here is this divine yearning that he has for his people to repent. He condescends through language to help encourage Jeremiah and us because it's recorded here. We can't comprehend as humans how one who is omniscient and sovereign could also yearn for the repentance of a people that he knows are not going to immediately repent, and yet he still yearns, and yet this is our God. This is some insight into our heart. Because he is God, he can both yearn for the people's repentance even though he knows that the discipline is going to have to come. He knows their immediate choice is going to be rebel, to, to rebel against him. It is a beautiful picture of the deep, deep love of our God. And it brings to mind another passage of Scripture. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This patience that is flowing toward us, comes from God's steadfast, His unending love, His love that never ends. 
And because of this, Paul asks the question, Or do you not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's what he chooses to bolster Jeremiah with before he sends him into what will be a life-threatening situation, a very difficult situation. And what a beautiful picture of God's heart for his people, for their repentance. What a beautiful picture of God's love for Jeremiah as his servant, that he takes the time to encourage him. And I don't want to go too far down the rabbit trail, but let me just say this. If you are going through life and you are not running back to the promises of God, if you are not seeking him out, hearing him through his word, if you're not praying, if you're not listening to things that remind you of truth, then don't, I mean, what you're doing when you do this and what I do when I do this is we're relying on our own strength. And then we wonder when we kind of falter. But look at the pattern that God sets. God God sets for Jeremiah before he sends him into this difficult situation, he strengthens him with what? Truth. The truth of who God is. He tells him, this is who I am. I long for my people to repent. Speak every word, don't hold back. And then he gives them the message, which in short, I'll abbreviate it here, if you will not listen and repent, then I will destroy the city of Jerusalem. Now, the message that is here is abbreviated, I just abbreviated it more for the sake of time, uh, but it's abbreviated from chapter 7, which we saw the full, or as much as we have, of the temple sermon. And there's so many correlations, there's so many similarities between even the abbreviated version and the full version in chapter 7 that it, it would lead us to believe it's, it's the same event. And so the Lord says in this temple sermon that Jeremiah delivered, I've sent the prophets, I've sent them urgently, and the people have not listened, they have not heeded. And so Jeremiah is now being sent as really the final prophet. This is going to be it. Uh, we see some insight into other prophets that, are, that we wouldn't otherwise know except for this trial of Jeremiah. So evidently there were other prophets as well, true prophets, not the false prophets we've seen before, but other true prophets who were de- delivering the same message Jeremiah was, and the people wouldn't respond. And so here's Jeremiah with the message that if you do not respond and repent, the city will become like Shiloh. Shiloh had been the place of worship before Jerusalem. You read about the move in First Chronicles uh, or Second Chronicles one, when David uh, selected the, the place in Jerusalem by, by God's leading. And so Shiloh represented to the people the ancient site of worship. It had the tabernacle. It was the center of worship for the people. And so it's this part of the message that that they were so offended by. Because they simply wouldn't believe that Yahweh would allow his temple to be destroyed. It's beyond their imagination. They're more interested in preserving their religion and the means of that religion than obeying the voice of God. Think about that. They should have remembered the words spoken many times, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. But in verse 7 we read, The religious leaders, that is the priests and the prophets, along with all the people, upon hearing Jeremiah's message, verse 8, laid hold of him, saying, you shall die. Now this is the beginning of a trial. It's probably the most detailed trial that we have, or account of of, of a trial in the Old Testament. And this is how it all started. It starts with this religious uprising in the temple. And there is such an outcry that we're going to see later that, The king's palace hears about it, and they come running in, and it becomes a civil trial. But it starts out here as a religious one. 
And what is happening is it's, it's, a, it's a, a mass kind of trial. The people are so involved in this that they are shouting. They have been worked up into a, fu- a fury. The cry, you shall die, was something that they believed based on the Mosaic law that if any prophet prophesied falsely, he was deserving of death. So they felt righteous in their cry that he should die. Their refusal to hear the message trumped the message itself, which is interesting because it was all rooted in their self-righteous legalism. Folks, that's what legalism does to us. That little legalist in all of our hearts that bears his head from time to time, or we could say often, uh, that's what he does. He blinds us to what the truth actually is, making us feel self-righteous, right? We feel so good about ourselves and we don't even realize we're missing the forest for the trees. They simply wouldn't believe Jeremiah was speaking the truth. It drips of irony. Irony may actually be an understatement because what they wanted was they wanted to preserve the means of approaching God, temple, worship, all of the mechanisms by which they would approach God, and yet totally ignore the voice of God. Totally enjoy, Why approach God if you're not going to listen to Him? The irony is unbelievable. Now, the crux of their argument, again, was the idea that the temple, with all of its majesty, would ever become like Shiloh. They simply didn't believe that. And then at the end of verse 9, we read that they gathered around Jeremiah. So if you imagine this mob, they've laid hold of him, they've said, you shall die, and now verse 9 describes them pressing in like a mob, a force that certainly would have just rattled Jeremiah. This would have been a very scary situation. Now, because of all of this, now the officials... The king's officials in the palace uh, hear of this in the city. It probably wouldn't have been hard for them to hear the upheaval because in the city of Jerusalem, if you've ever visited that part of the world, all the stone and the echoes, large crowd festival going on, lots of extra people in doubt, screaming, you shall die. Uh, Word travels pretty fast. And so the king's officials come up from the, uh, the, the, the palace, verse 10 says. And it says they took their seats at the new gate, verse 10. So here is where the trial shifts from one that is religious, uh, kind of a mob trial, to now being an official civil trial, uh, a tri- trial done by the political leaders. And as you see, they, it's, everything's set up. This is the norm. This is how they get stuff done. They have their own seats. They knew where to sit. So they went and they took their seats. And so now the religious leaders, the priests and the prophets, they become the prosecutors and they begin to present their case to these political leaders. Their indictment is found in verse 11 when they said to the officials and all the people, this man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. In other words, it's all very public. You heard what Jeremiah said. He deserves to die. He's incriminated himself. And after they rested, then Jeremiah is given the opportunity to defend himself, and he speaks and says, The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city all the words you have heard. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he has pronounced against you. In other words, it's not his message that he's delivering. It is the message of the Lord that he brings. He doesn't take back any of the words. He doesn't recant anything. He doesn't apologize for anything. He has obeyed the Lord's command to speak all the words. And the words, notice, aren't simply words of judgment. There, there is the message of repentance, a call to repentance. Turn to the voice of God and obey. And if you do, the Lord will relent. There's a message of hope in this. But before he ends his defense, he then adds, he submits himself to the, thort, to the court, the authority of the leaders, and he reminds them if they do kill him, 
You will bring innocent blood upon yourselves and upon the city and its inhabitants. For in truth, the Lord sent me to speak all these words in your ears. And with that, Jeremiah's defense ends. Ultimately, he submitted himself to the Lord, trusting him. I can imagine being thrown into a situation like that and, and, and speaking all those words and hearing the people say, you shall die, and then say, do with me what you will. Uh, you know, I'm thinking more like the guy later who takes off running. But here, Jeremiah submits himself to, to the will of the court because he's ultimately submitting himself to the will of his heavenly Father. And the Lord intervenes. It's not, not really what we'd expect, but the Lord intervenes. The hearts and minds of the leaders change. And maybe surprisingly, the people. Notice this, verse 16, because the, the, the king's officials and all the people, there's the phrase again, they respond to the religious leaders now and say, this man does not deserve the sentence of death, for he has spoken to us in the name of the Lord our God. It is a remarkable turn of events where the Lord works and is sovereign over rulers and over people. He is sovereign over kings and over mobs. And he demonstrates that in this case. Now, in verse 17, it sounds like there's a turn of events. But that's really not what's happening. We're actually going back in time in verse 17, back into the trial. If, if when we read it, you noticed, it seems a little awkward that the, the, the verdict is mentioned in, in verse 16. And then all of a sudden, the elders start making another defense argument. And so that's... Clearly not the order that things would have happened. They would have made a defense argument during the trial itself. Thematically, that's how things are organized in this part of, of Jeremiah. And so what we're getting is another theme uh, that we're, we're to pay attention to, that we're to look at. What is the theme that we're seeing here? Well, the theme is, is, is the focus on these elders, this kind of grassroots leadership. The role of elder was not a political role. It was not an elected office. It didn't even have an official title. These men were just respected in their villages among the people, uh, and they were called elder because of who they were. It was a, it was a role of character, really. Uh, there may have developed, in some cases, a more official uh, purpose in the role, but overall, this is who they were. It was a role of character. These were wise men. And what's interesting is they really knew the Scriptures. Because this is the only place in all of the Old Testament that we have a prophet quoted verbatim. And it's these elders who are doing the quoting. They know the book of Micah, which again, another little bit of insight here. Scripture's already being gathered together for preservation for the future. Already at this point in the history of God's people, at the time of Jeremiah, they are, they are preserving the book of Micah. And here they use it. They use it to make an argument, to set a precedent in, in the defense of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is drawing our attention to God's sovereign use of men without names, elders, ordinary people, extraordinary in some ways, to accomplish his purpose. And the elders present the prophecy of Micah, who foretold with the same, very similar detail, the destruction of Jerusalem. And then they point out that Hezekiah, who was king at the time of Micah, did not kill him. But instead, because of his fear of the Lord, led the people to repentance. And guess what? Yahweh did relent. He did not destroy Jerusalem. And so here they're setting a good example, a good precedent for the people now in this trial to listen and recognize this is the way that we should go. Hezekiah is the king who humbles himself in repentance and leads the people in the same way. But they do this in a way that presents a decision 
to be made. The elders are are wise men, and they set it up as like a fork in the road. You've got to choose which way you're going to go. So Hezekiah and Micah are presented on one side, and then Jehoiakim isn't here. He's not mentioned as being present. If he was present, Jeremiah leaves that detail out. Maybe he's out of the country. Maybe he's traveling. But just in case we would wonder what Jehoiakim to do, they already have an example set up because Jehoiakim's already been doing great evil in his very short reign, and they present this account of Uriah as a a story of what Jehoiakim would do. Uriah, this is not the Uriah in the David and Bathsheba story. This is much later. Uh, But Uriah was a prophet, and we don't know anything about him except this little bit. He was a prophet who spoke the truth. He was a true prophet. He spoke against the wickedness in Jerusalem, and because of this, Jehoiakim sought to kill him. And so he ran. He ran to Egypt, and Jehoiakim sent Elnathan after him to extradite him back to Jerusalem. And when he came back, he either had him killed, or many scholars believe he killed him himself because of the way that the language is structured. He kills him, and then he dishonors him by not giving him a proper burial. So here is the bad example, or the bad precedent. And so the elders, in all their wisdom, paint this decision before the people as, as again, like a fork in the road. Choose this day which way you will go. Will you go the way of Hezekiah, or will you go the way of Jehoiakim? Really brilliant how the Lord worked in in Jeremiah's life in this trial, bringing together the right people at the right time to speak the right words, and Jeremiah was trusting him through it all. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but the same sovereign God is working in your life right now. He is putting together the right people at the right time to say the right things and do the right things to accomplish His purposes in your life. You might not think that it's extraordinary, but look back to Jeremiah's account. God used men He doesn't even name. We don't even know who they were. They're just elders to say and present this case for the people to be swayed. And then again, another example is at the end, the very last verse. It's, it's actually richer than giving of one verse implies this Ahiakim. Uh, he's, he's quite a guy, and the Lord uses him to protect Jeremiah. He and his family, if we had time through Kings and Chronicles, we can see several members of his family were in various uh, positions of leadership throughout Jerusalem. They were like the... Um, the Kennedys or the Bushes in modern-day U.S. history of Jerusalem at this time. They were, they were kind of a dynasty. And so he had many, many, many connections and a lot of advantages. And the Lord uses his friendship with Jeremiah to preserve and to protect Jeremiah's life. So the sovereign rule of our God is, again, a shining theme in the book of Jeremiah. He accomplishes all of his purposes. And one of the things that shines through is that God does this through ordinary people. And by ordinary, I do not mean less than. Unfortunately, we live in a time when everybody wants to be special. Everyone wants to be extraordinary. The reality is most of us will live ordinary lives, will die, and will soon be forgotten, and that's okay. Because even though many of us want to be special, and we want to have a legacy, and we want books and movies made to tell the story of our lives, God often uses ordinary people to... Let me say it this way, God usually uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. All around the world and throughout history are many, many unknown people who do not, you do not know their names, who God has been raising up, building a church for himself, of faithful people plodding along who are trusting and obeying him just like us.
One of Francis Schaeffer's books was called No Little People. And in that book, this is what he describes, is that there are no little people in God's kingdom. What God is doing is extraordinary, even though we and the world around us might think it is quite boring. In addition to the theme of God using ordinary people, be encouraged, all of those of us who are very ordinary, uh, we also see some familiarity in the trial itself. Because there was another trial that this might remind us of, recorded in Scripture in which the religious leaders brought false charges because they were blinded by their own self-righteousness. And in this trial, they too worked up the crowd to scream in a fervor, He must die. And the political leaders come in at this trial and they heard the claims of truth, just like Jeremiah pronounced. Remember Jeremiah's words, For in truth, the Lord sent me to speak all these words in your ears. Jesus similarly, when Pilate questioned him, So you are a king? Jesus said, You say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And we remember Pilate's response, what is truth? And then he just turns and walks out and he says to the people, I find no guilt in him. But here's where the two stories differ. Instead of the people and the religious leaders being persuaded, instead of their hearts being changed, they dig their heels in. Crucify him, crucify him. He must die. And while Jeremiah was innocent of the charges that were brought against him, he was not an innocent man. He was a sinner just like you and me. But Jesus was perfectly innocent, the spotless Lamb of God. He came, delivered up by according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, to willingly lay down his life in our place. Everything that the people of Judah were so fearful of losing in the temple... All of the practices of worship, those were all just shadows and types. Jesus came as the true temple, the true sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He came and died so that you and I might be forgiven and made right before our holy creator. He came to become the cornerstone of a new and living temple, being constructed of believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue, precious stones to the praise and glory of our God. You may be in the middle of a trial right now. I know some of you are. Some of you probably are, and I don't know. It may be the kind of trial that's very acute and painful. It uh, feels like his life altered, may, may have already altered your life. It may be the kind of trial that drags on and on and seems never-ending, more like a torturous experience that you wish would be over. We can look at Jeremiah's life, and we can see a person who placed his life and trust in his God and obeyed his God in faith. And that's not a bad thing to look at Jeremiah's example, but that falls short of our true hope. You see, our hope is not simply in changing the way that we think or following a good example. We're not trying to find good examples because our need is much greater than that. We need a Savior to deliver us not just from our trials, but from ourselves. We need someone who will not merely remove the suffering in this life. We need someone who will remove the cause of suffering in this life and our guilty stain of sin. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He stood on trial, falsely accused. He laid down His life wrongly executed. And He took on all our sins, treacherously condemned. And so therefore, we have a sympathetic high priest in Jesus. One who knows how we have suffered and how we are suffering. 
the pains that we're experiencing. He has promised to be near to the brokenhearted. He has promised to wipe away one day every tear. He has promised and has already begun to make all things new. And as we sang this morning, your Jesus can repay from His own fullness all He takes away. We look back at Jeremiah's trial, not simply to see a good example of a man, but to see a faithful God who keeps all of His promises. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Let's pray. Lord, would you cause our hearts to enlarge in trust of you today? To see that you throughout time have worked and orchestrated through means to overcome obstacles that we can't even comprehend. Jeremiah should have died. That mob should have overtaken him. There's no reason why he should have been preserved in that particular situation, and yet you did. You preserved him. And we see Micah preserved. Hezekiah's heart changed. He repented. You relented. And yet we fast forward and we see all of your wrath because of all of our sin fall on the one who was innocent, who shouldn't have died. Lord, we thank you for the death of Christ, willingly laid down for our our sake. Would you cause our hearts to grow in faith, to know that if you have done all of these things, that we can trust you with our future. We can trust you even in the midst of our suffering. We can trust you to not only deliver us one day, but to carry us through, that the water will not overcome us, that the flame will not burn us, Lord. Would you cause our hearts to trust you in these things, and would you strengthen us now? that we may praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.